takeaway messages from both of the guests. So we will start with Mr. Burrow this evening. What is your key takeaway message from tonight's episode with Dylan Landy? I thought it was a very, very informative episode, talking about two new things. I've, le- I've learned a lot in that one that I've not really heard of before. So what was your, your key takeaways? A real great guy, a lot of insightful messages um, from the podcast, as, as you said there, um, you've took a lot away from it, so have I, so we'll, sh- we'll try and simplify what we've, what we've picked up. Um, mine would be, you spoke about when you're planning lessons, involve the students, something that I could do more of, get the get the voice of the pupils, do some question and answer sessions, do a Google form, get their opinion on what you're trying to do, and tell them that you're experimenting with models, or with this particular model and then get their feedback on it. How's it working for you? What's, what's, how could I do it better? And I'm sure they'll be able to give you some good answers and ultimately it's their classroom and their learning. So they should be involved in the process. And we've actually got an episode coming up with um, a teacher in Glasgow who's going to come on and talk about people voice within her department when she was a principal teacher. So that'll be one to look out for and one that we're looking forward to recording. Mm-hmm. What would you We're almost at episode 50, aren't we? What's this? Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, 40, 49. 50. I think this is the 49th one we've recorded, albeit we're not putting them out in that specific order, but mm-hmm. I think this is the 49th one. Right, hi Dylan. Nice to meet you. Welcome to A Wee Bit of Everything. Thanks for uh, joining us today to share your expertise around various models to teach PE and your sort of opinion on um, their efficacy. So, nice to meet you. Likewise, thanks for having me to both of you. Um, I'm really excited because uh, I'll be arriving in Scotland in a, in a couple of months. So it's a, it's a good That's teaser. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah, how's it coming to Strathclyde University? Are you looking forward to it? Uh, extremely. Um, I get to work with Carl Lamb and also David Kirk there, uh, who are both excellent physical educators. And then the folks at Edinburgh are unbelievable as well. So uh, I think that Scotland's PE is probably some of the best in the world. Very lucky. Have you been yeah. to Scotland before? Yeah. So in, um, I want to say 2018, but I could be wrong. Um, I went to the University of Edinburgh. Uh, absolutely stunning. International uh, physical education conference that's done every year. This year, it's online, but it was supposed to be in Banff, Canada. Oh, that'd be nice. You've definitely been good company then with, with Cara and David. They've been on the podcast as well over the past week, little while and they're very knowledgeable and really right on it. So yeah, you've been good company. So hopefully the restrictions have lifted, lifted a bit for you coming over. <laughs> so um, before we get into it then, could you give us and the listeners a little background information on your career to date, Dylan? Yeah, um, so uh, I started as an HPE teacher, health and PE teacher in New Jersey. Uh, I did that for five years. Um, I did one year at a high school, then four years at a K to eight school, which is normal in the US. Um, Then after doing that for five years, I was uh, asked to be the supervisor for health education, physical education and sport for uh, the largest school district in the state. Um, It's Newark Public Schools, 75 different schools. I supervised 175 plus uh, health and PE teachers and over 300 athletic coaches. Uh, I lost a lot of hair in that job. Um, I I still don't know how I survived half of it. (laughs) But uh, the kids were great. The teachers were great. But the the situation was a little um, 
it was rough. It was precarious, you could say, because what we were doing in the schools wasn't representing what the community needed. And we, it was a very big disconnect. And that sort of led me to be interested in community-based and social justice practices, which led me over to New Zealand. I did my PhD at the University of Auckland with Katie Fitzpatrick and Richard Pringle. I also taught classes there in health and physical education. Um, after that, I went to, I am at Towson and I'm on the teacher education program here, uh, predominantly teaching the teacher education type things. And now I'm excited to move to Glasgow. So, um, so what was your PhD on then? Yep. So I did my PhD in education with a focus on health and PE. Um, I examined the experiences of 60 LGBTQ youth um, in physical education, health education, and sexuality education. And uh, essentially, what would they do if we wanted to make it more inclusive and better? And the experiences that they had were some were shocking and not in a good way, and then some were shocking in a great way. Um, so it, it, it's really about creating an environment that is inclusive for all students, and that includes uh, students that don't identify with normative uh, gender binary or um, normative sexuality. Fantastic. Um, so we're going to move into some models-based questions now. Um, both myself and Lewis are very passionate about experimenting with different models of teaching PE. Um, and the experiences it can bring the young people. Um, we've been to a, a lot of CPD events over the past, looking at TPSR and cooperative learning. Could you elaborate a bit further on a specific model that you've had success with teaching and maybe share the, the aspirations and principles behind a particular approach? Yeah, so I, I think it's really important to um, say that I find models to be more of an inspiration than something to prescribe, right? So when I think about models, I think about the principles and I think about how those principles can be enacted. And there are a few people who don't like the term model. So they'll use something like we use an approach. And I, however you wanna call it really doesn't matter to me. But th the main thing is that I think of them as something that, what can I bring from this approach or this model and try it out and change to reflect the community that I'm with. So as a teacher educator uh, at the elementary level, I primarily use meaningful physical education approach. Um, and that's been by uh, Tim Fletcher, um, I'm gonna say her name so wrong and I'm sorry, uh, Deidre Nekronen, um, Mary O'Sullivan, Stephanie Benny, and I think Doug Gleddy's on a few of those as well. Uh, and with meaningful PE, um, the principles are social interaction, uh, fun, um, challenge. Uh, they use motor competency. I actually say domain competency because I think that it should not only be motor competency, but affective, uh, cognitive, uh, uh, mm -hmm. psychomotor, and social. Um, personal and social relevance. They say personal relevance. I say personal and social relevance because I think that it should reflect the community that they're in and reflect the social justice issues that are within that community. Um, and delight, which I love the term delight because uh, Kretschmar is sort of like getting caught up. So that's what I use at the elementary level. Um, at the secondary level, I tend to use uh, Joy Butler's uh, playing fair approach. Um, and Joy Butler essentially took TGFU and modified it to be democratic and address social justice aims. Um, so what she calls uh, inventing games or playing fair, the students have to invent games and through the invention of these games, uh, they then 
have to deal with social justice issues. So um, group processing, personal and social responsibility, um, doing free inquiry, social justice, and decision making are sort of the background of that. Mm-hmm. I think a big problem for us, or for my, my experience, is, is getting them to play fair and getting them to tolerate losing and tolerate uh, failing and making mistakes. That's a, that's a big focus, I think, for, for P, isn't it? So in the playing fair approach that Joy Butler um, created, uh, the students are the ones who create the roles. They're the ones who create the routines. They're the ones who create uh, the the different games and the settings. So in being the person who creates it, they are part of it. Therefore, they're more likely to, I don't want to say temper emotions and things like that, but they're more likely to follow rules that they're a part of creating. Right. It's a democratic process. So I think that it really talks about the co-construction and the democratic aims of education. Lewis, why don't you tell them about the sport education model that you use with a particularly difficult class in your school? Yeah, I just think it's, it was something that I was having. It was, there was a bit of a handful this class at the start of the year. And um, I was, we obviously because of COVID and stuff, we were kind of put outside and we didn't really have much options. We've got an outside volleyball net, but we don't have an AstroTurf pitch or anything like that. And, and we were kind of limited to what we could do. Um, but then after speaking to someone on the podcast, I'd never tried the sport education model. And then um, it was just totally gave them over the responsibility. It was quite a big football or soccer class. Um, they really enjoyed that. And it was just handed them over the responsibility. To, they had to like, we had a team administrator, um, a, a team manager, coach fitness coach all the the kind of typical roles of the sport education model and like I I just couldn't believe what I was kind of kind of seeing with it and how how well it worked with that class I was just so surprised actually and it's something I would never have thought I would have ever tried with a class like that because you've got the total fear of handing over so much responsibility but then in actual fact it it almost I I was took by surprise that's probably the best way to put it and how how well it worked the sport education model in the States is sort of like the Bible. Um, it's because it was created in the U.S. by Daryl Seedentop at Ohio State. And uh, I've written about this with colleagues in the past um, in, in uh, 2016. And what we say is that, you know, the sport education model has, is, quote unquote, um, it's been thoroughly tested in multiple settings. That there's lots of publications on it. But we have to remember it was created in the late 80s and early 90s. Like pre-massive internet, pre-globalization, pre-Black Lives Matter movement, like pre-Brexit. Like, think about that. And there obviously has to be some modifications that have to be made to it uh, to meet a particular setting. And one of the things that we talked about was a student, a, a, a teacher rather, in New Zealand what he did was he created the model, uh, he used the model, uh, but then he gave everybody sort of uh, teams like the Olympics. So like one team was New Zealand, one was team Samoa, one was team USA. And then he gave budgets to the team to reflect the actual budgets of the Olympics. So like team USA had a bajillion, gajillion dollars, right? (laughs) You know, they could buy whatever they want. And then Team Samoa, they had like a couple hundred thousand dollars. And then he put costs on renting the fields and um, using pennies and uh, being able to purchase equipment. So then, you know, the, the sports council, the people who come in to make things fair, they had to come together and sort of figure out how can we make this more equitable? 
so that Team Samoa can compete with Team USA despite these massive budgetary differences. So, you know, the sport education model, I think I've used it in the past, I love it. Um, but we also have to remember, it has to be modified for particular settings, and we also have to have the material circumstances to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the way that I did it in a high school when I had a lot of time was great. I couldn't have done it in, a, in my elementary setting because I get my kids for 30 minutes a week. Yeah, it's not enough. Over. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's not only about does the model represent the place, but also material circumstances in order to enact that model. Yeah, there's just so much you can, with like a group of I was going to say there's there's like so much you can do with it. Like you were talking about all the kind of the budgets and stuff like that. Like you're just automatically teaching numeracy skills and like you can tie in so much with it just with using that model. If you're doing that for like eight or twelve weeks or whatever it is, however long you would typically teach it for, like you can really get the, the pupils and stuff to buy into it and make it like a big interdisciplinary thing as well, as opposed to just being a football tournament or a rugby tournament or something like that and they're just developing skills that like you can do so much more with it which I think is really good yeah I agree and I think that it's really important to tie in these things I think one of the things is the poster contest where teams have to create their own posters and they you know they put them up mm -hmm. um, we used to have the art teacher come in and uh, evaluate the posters for you know the points that you won with that so getting other people involved so that there is that consensus building and that group sharing. I agree. I think it, I think it's fabulous, but again, I think it needs to be adapted. I think, yeah. um, it's not just, you know, copy pasta or copy pasta. Sarah Flory says that copy paste and just try and do it <laughs> in the same place everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to fit the context as a lot of our guests have said, it's really important that you do that. Uh, so if you had to pick one model then that you've had success working with secondary school, pupils like aged 11 to 18, would you be able to pick one that you would have success with or if you were taking a class tomorrow or training up teachers like ourselves who are at university or um, maybe just started teaching, would you, would you be able to pick a particular model that you've had success with? Yeah, and that, that would be the playing fair approach. And the reason why I would do that is um, I think it's better suited for secondary settings rather than primary. Uh, meaningful PE for me is a primary type thing. Um, and, and for a lot of the same reasons, you're, you're handing over the, the onus to the students. Um, the students are focusing on uh, personal responsibility in relation to social responsibility. So they're continually negotiating what the class needs versus what they need and they have to compromise and make those compromises themselves and they, they negotiate and discuss just about everything you know they, they they create the game themselves they create the boundaries themselves they discuss the rules and what's the consequence of a penalty for the rule so you're creating this democratic system in physical education which results to a translation into culture right you're discussing all the things, all of the skills that are needed, not only to, to be physically active, right, and to be a literate sports person, um, but also to have a critical understanding of sport and to have a critical understanding of physical culture and who has access to it and who doesn't. Yeah, I like that. Um, How long would you typically yeah. spend on that then? Like, say if you were, would you just do like one unit of that for per class per year or something? Or how, how many weeks would you would you focus on that? Well, so ev everything's sort of different with that, right? So 
what the amount of time that it would take for uh, different classes is always interesting. So do you guys know the Bunker and Thorpe sort of, um, do you guys know what I'm talking about? The, the I've, I've heard of Bunker and Thorpe before, but is it? So TGFU is Bunker and Thorpe, right? Yeah. And they have like this sort of flow chart where you start with the game, you go to game appreciation. So with Joy Butler, um, you set learning conditions, then the students invent a game. Then they learn to appreciate the game by, you know, playing it. Then they make changes to the game based off of playing it. So they make refinements to it. Then they make adapt adaptations so that everybody has the ability to be, you know, uh, uh, involved in it and everybody can score. Then they make refinements to the game. So they identify who the coach is. They identify who the referee is. They identify uh, managers and things like that. Then what they do is they take the game and they showcase it to the rest of the class. And the class gives feedback, and they do that. Then they discuss offensive and defensive tactics, and then they transition it. So what type of game is this? It's a target game. It's a striking game. It's a net and wall game. So, and then you keep following this. You, know, you appreciate, you refine, you adapt, you refine, you showcase. And then you develop different tactics and things. So I, I guess it really depends on the amount of time that it takes to do that, right? And for different people, it's different. Um, I would argue if you're going to do it very well, you need to uh, do it over a long period of time, you know, like a sport education type thing. So how long does it take to typically in your experiences of doing this, how long does it take to get it up and running to get the students to actually come up with a game? Like, does that take like one lesson where they're just sitting? Do you, do you give them a set amount of equipment. Do you say you can go into the cupboard and choose, take whatever equipment you want to, to create the game, or do you obviously put a set? So I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I deal with teacher educators at this point in my career, right? So right. they're the <laughs> ones who are creating it, and they can do it a lot faster yeah. than a high school student can or a middle school student can. But for me, it takes a semester to do this entire process with uh-huh. you know, high school, uh, with uh, university students. So that's That's a good 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, I think that's a, a really good one as well, Clark, because obviously with, the, with S1 to S3, which is the first three years of high school, we, we're, we teach like physical education through what's called the, the benchmarks. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And it's like the... Yeah, I've been reading up on it. Yeah, so that would lend itself really nicely to because you're not specifically doing... And I think that would apply, um, appeal to students who don't particularly enjoy certain sports. You know, I think I that would think still create them, modified but, games aye. That, are, that aren't exactly the sport, but maybe like a different form of it. And it's a really good way to assess those benchmarks as well. That that just mm-hmm. using that model versus using a sport to teach a, a unit mm-hmm. That's a I love that. No, I like I liked what Dylan said about the class needs versus the their individual needs. It's a constant interplay between the two. That's a good way to look at it, and then creating that democratic system within the class um, can only be beneficial for the their effective domain as well, developing the personal qualities. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so what does it mean for in terms of, so if you've got like playing fair as your sort of model, would you like to just summarize then the sort of key principles of playing fair just to round us off for that question? Yeah. So what I said earlier, um, the key principles are group processing. So, you know, the students have to learn how to negotiate with each other. What you were just saying, right? So, um, Students who normally don't have a voice in physical education, 
now have a voice in physical education because they are part of the decision making of the games, right? And that's the second point is decision making. Um, trying to balance out the social contract that is going on and making decisions as a group. So literally the students have to develop a way to make decisions. We don't tell them how to do it. We say, we want you to develop a system on how to make decisions. Some people do a vote. Some people say, well, if you vote, then it's majority rules. And if it's majority rules, then the minority is always going to be left out. So how can you create a, a, a decision-making system that is both inclusive of minority needs as well as majority uh, discourses, what's going on? Um, personal and social responsibility, you know, uh, it, it, kind of that negotiation, that interplay between what the individual needs, but creating roles for individuals so that they are personally responsible for the social of the game, sort of like sport education does. Um, free inquiry is another process. I'm sorry, I'm rattling these off. Um, giving the students the opportunity to inquire about a game, to inquire about skill, to inquire about tactics and uh, different ways of doing it, being hands off of it, you know? And obviously the biggest one is social justice. And this is intentionally teaching about the creation of games in order for them to be inclusive and fair, right? We have to recognize what were you going to say? So, so see the work that you do with the, the teacher educators, would you go over this with them as well and then they would go away and come up with tasks that they could teach the students, yeah? Yeah, so I would start by going over all the principles like I just did. Yeah. I would provide them sort of the flowchart. And then what I would do is I would set up activities for each of the flowcharts, right? And we'll go through that. And throughout the semester, which, by the way, we meet roughly 20 times in 12 weeks. So just to give you an understanding that it's not like I see them every day, right? Um, over those 20 weeks, we create games. And we do that multiple times, and we refine them multiple times. But the main key to it is forcing them to think about equity, forcing them to think about how the rules that they create how the systems that they create have the ability to help some people at the expense of others. So how can you adapt that so that all people are included? Yeah, they're more likely to stick to them as well because they are. So yep. hopefully that would then help the behavior as well within the class and ultimately attainment. Yeah. Fantastic, thanks for that then. Thanks for sharing that approach with, that model with us. Um, right, so Dylan, in your opinion then, how could we break down barriers so more teachers can engage in this um, pedagogical model then? What's your kind of thoughts on that? Well, I think the first thing is we have to define what the barriers are, right? So like in, in most cases, the major barriers for teachers are exactly what we were just saying. They're out of teachers' hands. It's the material circumstances, right? Um, having the facilities, having the time. Time is the most precious resource. <laughs> Yeah, for um, sure. But then, yeah, but the, the second barrier for me is um, convincing folks of a new way to do something, right? Um, and it goes against the grain. It goes against what they're used to. And we have to realize that what we are asking kids to do are radical. We're asking kids to co-create things in systems that are meant to really tell kids what to do. Mm -hmm. So how can you do consensus building around that? How can you 
build a community around the idea that this is a good way to teach. Not only is it a good way to teach, but this is going to move away from the prescriptive approach that you're doing to be more co-creative. And the third barrier, and I actually think the TGFU folks, Bunker and Torp and all them, they, they've dealt with this well. And it's how to package these things in particular ways so that the teachers can experiment with it. And what I mean by that is uh, they find a balance between promoting a model, but also uh, giving teachers autonomy to play with a model and to uh, experiment. I like the word that you used earlier when you said we experiment with multiple models. And that's what it should be. It shouldn't be this is the Bible. Um, and I think TGFU has done that in different ways. One, they have full TGFU conferences, so they see all the different adaptations of it. There's a website, uh, there's books. So we have to uh, find a way to promote particular models and teach about them, but also promote experimentation and how to change them and adapt them. But I think, I think one thing that you know, we don't talk about enough is that we tend to choose models that reflect us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, how we re reflect our personalities. Yeah, and sure. there's a reason why when I first started teaching, I did sport education, because I grew up playing in sport leagues, uh -huh. right? And that was comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. And that's, I knew that backward and forward. I knew what a stats book looked like. I knew what a playbook looked like. Yeah. Now that I've shifted to sort of a social justice lens, I use playing fair because it teaches democratic games. So we, we have to recognize what model is best suited for our values and what we want to teach to young people. Yeah. And I think as well, like, in my experience, like I've not been teaching for years and years, but my experience of like trying new things out is I like to see something in action first. So like maybe going to like a CPD event and seeing how something runs or because I think taking it from a book and then trying to, I think it's just, it's quite difficult. You don't know if you're doing it well or not. I think I like to see it physically being done oh. first or having some sort of guideline or outline of, of how to do it before doing it. Because I think a lot of the time when you just read something, it's, it's, it's a bit of a nightmare to try and to try and change your practice and implement it. And there's a reason you're a physical educator because you learn through doing, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's that corporal real experience. And I think TGFU has done a great job with that because of all the conferences they have. We just mentioned ISEP earlier. They have a pre-conference event that only deals with TGFU and all these teachers and, and lecturers all come together to discuss TGFU and, and the evolution of it and the principles of it. Yeah, I think the, the main thing is is just going in and trying it and then reflecting on it and seeing what went well and then just trying to, just improving it every single time you do it. But you just need to take that first step, essentially, don't you? And yeah, that, that's all it is. That, that was the same with me with the, the sport ed thing. I've not done it for a, a long time because we get rained off and stuff. So the pitches were waterlogged, but it was going well up until that point. But now I've got the confidence to go back and try that maybe with a different group, a different sport and um, and try it again. So I guess it's my advice would be just taking that first step with it and then seeing how it goes and then just tweaking it to suit your context, I guess. That's kind of what it comes yeah. back to all the time, isn't it? Your local context. Yeah, I think for me, um, I don't know, but Dylan might be able to explain it a bit better than this, but, or maybe Lewis as well, like forgetting all the, get, the guests on the podcast, there's loads of different models to teach, but ultimately the one that I would pick could be based on the class, like the sex in the class, is it kind of mixed gender, is it, uh, the ability levels 
I think some classes you look at them, you go, I could really do a good sport ed, sport ed block with this class, like my school of football. Mm-hmm. Then there's other classes where maybe more cooperative learning or a certain class might need more TPSR, like S4 core boys class, for example, teaching them about values and respect. If the behaviour isn't good, so I think it's about, it's, I suppose, it's like a toolkit, I suppose, with different models in it, and you can just pick and need, pick yeah. and choose what one you need. They're just so flexible as well, aren't they? Like you can do, there's just so many variables, they're super flexible. With the class, you can tweak it to, to suit, suit the needs of that class. Yeah. And you're both talking on different ends of the spectrum, right? So on one end, you have, you look at your community, you choose the model that best suits that community. But it's really hard to do that unless like you're living in the community and you know everything or you've been teaching there for 20, 30 years. The other option is the other end of the spectrum with the model or the approach is that you choose the model, the approach, and then as you get to learn the community, you make changes to that model approach so it reflects the community's needs. Mm-hmm. So I think both are worthwhile and I think both are good ways to do it. But at the end of the day, you have to try it and you have to feel comfortable teaching it. Um, mm-hmm. If you're not comfortable, it's, it's not going to look good. Yeah, that's true. And that's the thing about teaching like total traditional way, isn't it? Like skills-based learning, it's just, there's just like one way of doing it and it's just not flexible at all because you've got something that you want to try and get through. But I've never really thought thought about it like that, about how flexible these different models are and you can tweak them to your setting. So I think that's a good way to put it. That's what I was going to ask you, Dylan. What's it like in America? Like Lewis was talking about skill development there. Is it a big focus on skill and fitness or is it the effective domain? Uh, you, you just really stepped on a landmine with that question. Um, <laughs> that's my answer. Um, so, uh, you, you, first of all, you can't say what's it like in America. because So, unlike uh, uh, other OECD countries, there's no national curriculum. Each state uh, is required right. to develop standards and outcomes, what you would call benchmarks. Um, and then... So, okay, so national, there's nothing that is like law that you have to follow. There's the government, we have something called Shape America that creates a document, right? And that document influences what states do, but they don't have to follow it. So some states will have some things, other states will have others. So, um, So then the state comes up with these different landmarks or different benchmarks rather. And then in each state, the individual either town or county, so town like, you know, I, I live in a town of 33,000, or county, I live with 700,000 people, then decides what am I going to, what is our organization going to do to meet those standards? So somebody who is living in Baltimore, Maryland, which is where I live, right, and somebody living right down the street from Baltimore, Maryland, in, I don't know, Perry Hall, Maryland, will have two completely different physical education experiences, likely. Is that based, so, on the, based on the curriculum? It's, different. it's based on curriculum. It's based off of material supplies and the, the, their circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's based off of the individual school and the school's values. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sometimes I cut in and out. Um, but the main thing is that, on the whole, um, the, the national organization puts skill development really high. They have five standards, and the first thing, and with underneath the five standards, there are about 500 outcomes. And I would say roughly 300 of those outcomes are have to do with like psychomotor skill, 
-hmm. and like throwing and discrete, disconnected to the environment. So it's sort of a landmine question because no matter where you are, it could be completely different. Um, But also it depends on the place that you're at. And uh, it also depends on like the research environment that you're at. You know, I live in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins University is here, which is a public health focused university. So there are people who literally go into PE classes with Johns Hopkins researchers that they don't have a PE program, by the way. And they're doing like these physical activity programs, just trying to get kids to be, you know, fat kids to be less fat and skinny kids to be, you know, even skinnier. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's their whole goal. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, I think in Scotland as well, there's certain local authorities that are probably, they've got different approaches as well, but maybe not as extreme as, as the States. I don't think. Do you think it's there's a big push on like skill development in the states because of college sport and stuff like that is provides opportunities for young people maybe from disadvantaged backgrounds and they can make a, a living that way because college sports and stuff here are nowhere near like it's nothing compared to because you get scholarships and all that for the US and then obviously these NFL well the football players and stuff are on big money and I, yeah, I don't know if no, that's part of it or no it isn't so um. that that seems logical right like developing athletes in physical education um but actually that's not the goal of physical education here it's sort of like to not that there's only one goal in physical education here um but i think that the reason to answer your question i think that the reason why there's a focus on skill development is because in many school districts not all many um the people who get hired to be physical education teachers are first coaches and then teachers. Right. So they get hired to be the American football coach. They get hired to be the baseball coach and they have a teaching license. Mm-hmm. Um, so our after school sports systems are what feed into the college level. But the people who are interested and teach physical education here have sporting backgrounds and therefore that's what they're good at. Yeah, makes sense. So have you, have you, before I ask my next question, then it makes sense to ask you, are you kind of doing your, your work virtually just now or are you face-to-face with your students? We are 100% virtual um, in our setting. Uh, and there's been a lot of challenges with it, but I, I, I like building relationships, so it's really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you Definitely know, I think same. that... Yeah, and I I think that the way, something that's interesting is the way that school districts are responding to it. And um, a lot of different school districts are actually giving teachers prescriptive lesson plans um, because they're afraid of what the parents will see happens in physical education normally. Mm -hmm. So they're telling the teachers what to do. Yeah. So there's a lot of trust in the teachers then? Very low trust model. Oh, that's not good. So, and what, have you seen or heard of any successful tasks being carried out virtually with students, um, high school students, or with your students at the university as well, like from a virtual standpoint? So something that I, I'm trying to uh, work through with the whole virtual situation, since we're talking about pedagogical models, is uh, the practicing pedagogical model. And I, I, I just tweeted about it the other day. Um, and it was developed by uh, Dean Barker, Ken Algerholm, uh, Oyvind Spandahl, and Harkin Lawson. And 
the, the purpose of this is you use the class time to develop practicing plans, I guess is the way to think about it. So the class time themselves, so think about COVID, we're all in this together, right? And in, in the class time, the students create a movement timeline where they have sort of a starting point. They select movements that they want to practice. So if there's 20 different students in the class, each student may choose a different movement that is relation to their subjectivity or their identity and their experiences. Then they have to provide reasons why this is the movement that they want to do. Um, and they have to sort of estimate what are the changes that they're going to see in this movement plan. Um, then they go off and they do it. They, they do this movement plan and it's sort of like a flip type classroom where you, you do the planning in class and then outside of class, they learn on their own. And they have to uh, have recorded diaries. Some people have videos, some people have different things that they do. And at the end of this unit, they then have to present what they have been practicing and what they have learned mm -hmm. to is the class. Like, is that just like, like a running program or if they chose like a cycling program? It, if that's what they want to do, it's up to them. The, the, uh, one of the major principles, I think there's six or seven, um, is agency. And the students have to be able to uh, reflect on who they are, focus on self-transformation, and uh, choose a skill that they want to get better at. So the content that they choose is up to them. And they've got to go and research practices and approaches to help them develop that particular area. So it's all, yeah. all student-led. Yeah. And is that for your students or for high school students to do? Is that what you're... So that's what I've been trying to uh, get some of our interns to try here. Uh -huh. um, interns is like student teachers. Because with, with our kids, they really only see um, everybody virtually. And they've mm -hmm. cut down the amount of class time because of Zoom, the fatigue, and all that. Mm -hmm. So if they can do this, you know, try this new thing out where they're creating plans in class and then outside of class, they're going to go out. And the students are going to then come back and present. I think that'd be great. I haven't tried it with, uh, well, I did, yeah, yeah, I did try it with um, one class, but it wasn't a pedagogy class. It was more of an activity class. Mm -hmm. that's, quite, that's quite similar to our like, National 5 curriculum here and the higher as well. It's almost like a, going through a cycle of analysis, isn't it? You're gathering, well, we would gather information through like fitness tests or skills observation um, checklists and see, identify mm -hmm. strengths and weaknesses that way. And then they would go and plan their training program and then evaluate it at the end so it's very much similar to that only you're giving them full control over it yeah yeah and but they and don't forget that the evidence is not just like checklists yeah. or uh fitness tests uh -huh. the the evidence is diaries and um students reflecting on their embodied experiences and mm -hmm. videos showing how they progress yes yeah, so this is where it started yeah exactly it's, it's really a, it's a good portfolio. idea for a BGE Yeah, I didn't come up with it, so don't think I did. Um, that was Dean Barker, Ken Algerholm, uh, <laughs> Oyvind Stendhal, and Harkin Lawson. So, genius. No, but thanks for sharing that, though, because that's something that, because we're always looking for new ideas, and Ash, on the podcast the other night, shared one very similar to the playing fair approach. I think that's maybe what it was, where he was getting his students to create games, but using recyclable household items like milk cartons and Amazon boxes and things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that is very much the same kind of same kind of thing as the playing fair approach. So it sounds like it anyway. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, because what we're doing now, like virtually with the BGE in our school is 
they have to fill fill out a training diary. So they they would go out a run, go a walk, or go a cycle, and then record it in a diary on Monday. That's what they've done. So I'm thinking that 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 could be a good extension to that task, is where they can uh, show progress. Maybe record it through a video, just saying. Maybe just evaluate the different feelings in their body, how they're feeling mentally as well as a as a result of exercising more. That would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Holding, holding them accountable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just thinking about loud there. I don't know if that sounded right or not. <laughs> Sorry, I can always edit it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe needed. Brilliant. No, thanks. For that. That's a really good idea, Dylan. Um, that's something I'll definitely be looking into. I'm always looking for more ideas to pinch for the current climate that we're in. So, aye, that's great. Hope it works. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so then, Dylan, where do you see PE? Um, or let me, let me rephrase that. How do you see PE helping um, move, move us forward post-COVID in terms of the kind of students' development? How do you see PE being a big part of it? You know, I think pre-COVID, post-COVID, during COVID, I, I think that um, we really need to think about how we're going to reinvent ourselves. And David Kirk talks a lot about this. He, you know, he talks about in the 1950s, we shifted over to sport because culture, right? And that shift to sport, that transformation to sport is what kept us relevant. So I think we need to think about what our students' needs are, what their community's needs are, and we need to reflect those changes in, in, in society. Um, but given what we're going through, right? there are massive changes to social justice flooding across the world, right? Um, like I said earlier, Black Lives Matter, you know, Brexit's going on, um, uh, uh, Me Too movement. Um, we, we need to recognize that our field is historically misogynistic. It's historically racist. Uh, it's historically ableist. And it's historically homophobic. So I think what we what what we really need to think about as a field is how are we going to reinvent ourselves to be inclusive, to be fair, and to teach about these issues through human movement. Love that. I really like that point about reinventing yourselves. That's a it's a great term to use and get us get us thinking outside the box and being creative. I think it'll get it'll have a a, a larger buy-in as well because you can see always see like the divide as well and and um PE as a subject, like for, for typically for the things that you've just mentioned, you know, for like ability levels and things like that as well. Because you're always, it's not always inclusive and it could be so much more inclusive. And then the, the young people will get just so much more from it. So just so, there, there's just so much potential in PE and you can teach so much through it using these different models and using the sports as a vehicle to, to teach all these amazing life skills that they're going to uh, use later on in life, I guess. Yeah, and, 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 you know, not limiting ourselves to sports, right? Physical culture is more than sport. Yeah. It's what we do with our bodies. We also have to recognize that, you know, the reason that we're sort of, I don't want to say stuck, but the reason why we, we have this issue is because for a really long time, we've been ambulance chasers. And what I mean by that is, you, you know, the ambulance goes and you run after it. Um, 30 years ago, the ambulance was obesity. So everybody's like, we have to run after obesity right now. Go get it. We're going to solve obesity. 
Um, in England, at one point, it was about athletics and not having enough sports skilled persons. So then PE was like, oh, we got We got to create sports skilled people. We have to do that. In the U.S. right now, it's social and emotional learning. So everybody's like, oh, we need to do that. We need to do that. Rather than, you know, sort of latching ourselves onto the it thing, looking at our culture, looking at, you know, the way students move and their, their inclusivity and reinventing ourselves embedded in those cultures and that reflects students' needs and young people's needs and not what, you know, I'm not, not what old fogies want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we won't say it. Sorry, what was that? I said we won't say if I'm an old fogey or not because I think I'm on the borderline, right? You're a young, <laughs> you're a young man. <laughs> um, what was I going to say there? I, I, P is an emotional subject, doesn't it? It brings up a lot of emotions in the pupils, like anxiety, excitement, comp- comp- competitiveness. It, it's a very emotional subject, and I think we can bring a lot of learning and how to deal with those emotions maybe in a different way rather than um, always through uh, the sport in itself. I think we could just conversations that we have with pupils and how to deal with those emotions because it's, it's life really, isn't it? Emotion. Yeah, teaching skills like perseverance and such. But the, the, the other part is like a very social subject. Like movement, physical culture is a very social thing. I mean, just based off of how often are people physically active and generally when they are physically active, they're physically active in, around, and with others. Mm-hmm. So it's about teaching those emotions, but in relation to the social issues that occur and how we can reflect our society in the best of ways rather than the not so best ways. Well, you can't be socializing and exercising. At the same time, it's the best thing you can do, and to give them that platform is just, I suppose it's a, it's a grateful job to be doing, isn't it? We're quite lucky to be doing it. Like, see, just going a bit deeper, like, I, I, like, we are surely, like, humans are born to, to move and be active, and, like, I don't know where, at what point in a person's life we are, like, I'm, this is just because I, I love being active, and, I'm obsessed with like movement and sport and all that kind of stuff. And I just think it's just so good for my own sanity and it's just brilliant. And at what point in a person's life do they find that they just don't, they don't enjoy doing it? Well, I wonder what happens. Is it maybe through PE? Is it through computer games where they just get addicted to that? And I don't know, they've just not found a path or a passion for it at all. Because I don't think, like, I think surely everybody's born to love to move. Like that's what you, you're constantly doing. So two things come to mind. I, I think you're putting too much on PE right now. I mean, we are but a very small percentage in young people's lives. And yeah, no. to say that, you know, <laughs> no, no, I don't. Like, I know, do. I know that. But I, I think it can sometimes. Like that can be a reason. Like that can give people that traumatic experience that they mm-hmm. they might have in PE, and that can put them off. But that's obviously one of many reasons as to why. Like there's obviously other barriers. There's also the perception as well for parents that didn't like it. It's passed down, doesn't it? Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, we as physical educators and health educators want to say, yeah, everybody's born to move. But there's a cadre of people who would say the opposite, right? They're like, okay, so would you rather push your lawnmower or sit on top of it? Mm -hmm. Right? So are, are, 
we born to move or are we born to live the most comfortable life and does that involve movement or not but this um, is because but, we've developed so much as like uh, but if you have to go way 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 back before we had all like sit on lawnmowers and stuff like that then i think it shows that we were all always like very very active as a, a species yeah yes and no i think we've always taken shortcuts as a species right yeah you know, that's true. Um, we we stayed away from hard labor when we could, things like that. I, I think there's evidence for both. I, I think yeah. that, you know, it, it could go either way. But what we do know is that our environment and uh, where we are ensconced, where we're around, uh, heavily influences our abilities to be physically active. Mm. Um, you know, just things such as access to physical activity. Uh, a, a, a friend of mine teaches in New York City. Um, and he did a, 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 an exercise with his students. He's saying, so where, where do you want to be physically active in your neighborhood? And the kids were drawing it. And one of the kids drew a basketball court. And that basketball court was filled with needles and bottles and gang members. And says, this is where I'm supposed to be physically active. And this is where I'm supposed to feel safe. But I can't. Mm -hmm. So physical activity is a very social endeavor. And we have to recognize that there's different access points. We have to recognize that we're more likely to be physically active when we're with like-minded people who want to be physically active. And we're more likely to be physically active when we enjoy it, when we get a delight out of it. And it's about creating environments and experiences where people value that. Definitely. Yeah. That's our job as a PE teacher. That's the end so, goal, isn't it? Yeah. Extracurricular programs as well. Is that, is that big in, in uh, the state you're in? Extracurricular provisions? huge um so after school sports are humongous um so uh every high school has a sports team in just about every sport it feels like um middle schools have sport teams then there's recreation teams and this is this is the question right you know if there's all of these opportunities for physical activity in the u.s and if that's where the majority of people are learning skills you know is physical education in schools obsolete? Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I suppose their job might be to teach the life skills in more rather than the skill. I would, I would agree with you, but there are people who wouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just opinions, isn't it? A lot of it. It's just, especially PE, it's, so, it's very subjective. Yeah. yeah, and based off of our experiences, right? right. I love PE because I was a good sports person. Sometimes I hate PE because I was a gay guy in PE, right? So, like, I have mixed feelings uh, towards it. But on the whole, I think that it's a valuable experience in my life that I enjoy. So I am an advocate for it. Mm -hmm. So just before we go into the last question, just jumping back a bit, you spoke about your PhD, which was in the LGBT plus groups. Could you maybe go into a bit more detail for the listeners about what that was and what you found in your research? Because that's quite a big thing in Scotland now, within schools. The, there's an, a working group within my school led by teachers and mostly pupils. I think there's 60 in it. Um, so it's quite a big part and they, they do a lot of work around the school um, on raising awareness. So. Okay, so excellent. You and I are going to talk when I move there. Um, <laughs> no bother. So um, what I did was I organization not-for-profit organization in New Zealand 
uh, that worked with LGBTQ youth. So I worked with 60 LGBTQ youth uh, between the ages of roughly 13 and maybe 12, I have to look back, it's been a while, and 25. The majority of these kids were under 18. Um, 20 of the students were non-binary or trans, um, and then everybody uh, fell somewhere in the you know LGBTQI umbrella. Uh, main things that we found were the classes are set up by competition and they don't enjoy that because a lot of their life has to deal with competing with others for particular things, being judged by others, uh, uh, and having these sort of classifying practices. And when they have to deal with this outside of physical education, PE is meant to be a time where they don't have to deal with this type of stuff, where they can focus on social gatherings and being together and enjoying each other's company through movement, but then they're put into these competitive situations where they're ranked and judged against each other. Um, the second thing is, you know, gender as an organizing principle in physical education. So a lot of times when you think about it, the locker rooms are split up by, you know, boys and girls. Um, the uniforms are split up by boys and girls. Um, even, you know, some sports are like netball is a girl sport and, you know, rugby is a boy sport, the way that it's quote unquote set up. Um, they don't enjoy that. They like to think about these things as co-ed and they they want to hang out with each other. A major issue that they talked about was, you know, when, when you're in class or when you're when you're playing on a sports team or something like that, you get to choose who your classmates are and you get to choose who your sports persons are. And your physical education is a very, uh, uh, your body is on display, right? You know, at all times. So if your body is on display, you need to feel comfortable. And the people that you are around influences how you feel. So being able to choose who's in your PE classes is really important to them. Um, the women hated fitness testing. Um, they called it the bleep test at many different points. Uh, and, but in many ways, these young people also shifted their environments. They forced teachers to address LGBTQ issues. They talked about it to students and they brought it up. But I think the major thing that, you know, from the research that is scariest is that of the 60 students, 59 of them dropped physical education as soon as it wasn't required. 59 out of 60? Yep. That's hard one. Good. <laughs> not doing, we're not doing enough there. So if, if we're thinking that PE is not a great environment for some, it's definitely not great for most LGBTQ persons. And there's multiple reasons why, you know, changing rooms, um, fitness testing, uh, competition, you know, and the types of games that are played don't reflect LGBTQ or youth culture at all. Have you seen a massive shift then since you've been at high school to, to just now? Obviously, there's a lot more like awareness being raised, but are you physically seeing like a lot of change happening? I see changes happening in schools. I, I see changes happening in society more broadly. And I think that there's a, a general, like, so there was a show in the U.S. called Seinfeld in the early 90s. And they, one time they would bring up like, it, it's so unpolitically correct now, but it was a funny show back then. Some would say it's still and one of the things that they would do is they would say, oh, yeah, blank is gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And that's mm. what I sort of feel like it is in PE. It's like, oh, yeah, they're trans. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. But, so it's like nothing's wrong with it, but you're also not doing anything to support that student. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. you're not, you're just continuing business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's because like the, the mindset is because it doesn't affect, like we've not, it doesn't affect us necessarily. So that's why maybe the change is, is so hard. I wonder if that's what the kind of mindset is and it's almost ingrained and it's just trying to shift it, isn't it? Yeah. And sport is a very conservative field in many ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it, it's hard to make that shift, but if the goal is to is to promote physical activity and valuing physically active phys, valuing physical activity, then LGBTQ populations are part of that. Yeah, for um, sure. I had a friend when I was at Teachers College doing my master's. I had a friend who used to he used to say every single one of those students is a potential new board member for like the board of education. That means they could be voting if we keep PE or not in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a good way to think about your practice, that. Yeah. Well, thanks for rounding off your research on LGBT+. That was really uh, insightful and some definitely prominent issues there that need to be addressed, for, um, for sure. Just before we go on to the quick fire rounds, the last question in the main section. Lastly, in your opinion, Dylan, for you, what makes a high-quality teacher? Um, building meaningful relationships with your students, knowing your students, um, and, you know, having good relationships that are meaningful, uh, understanding and teaching about the differences within your students and within the communities. So not just understanding that there's differences, but teaching about those differences so that the students understand those differences as well. Um, somebody who sparks the curiosity for learning, right? Who, when students walk away, they want to learn more. And I think somebody who teaches about personal, social, and their environmental slash community responsibilities, right? And they do this through the different learning domains in physical education. Yeah, I like that one that you spoke about the community and teaching the needs of the community and your lessons, that's something that maybe I don't do enough for sure. So I like that. That's where that, that's where those models come in, Clark. Get well versed on them and get them going. Yeah, I think this one, uh, this podcast, been really insightful for that, and we spoke a lot about community links and bridging the gap between the community and the school and making them aware of the differences and teaching them. So thanks, Dylan, for sharing those uh, insightful messages. I'm sure they'll help the listeners as well who are tuning in and. Thanks for your time tonight. We really enjoyed chatting with you and we'll hopefully meet in person in Glasgow once you, once you come over. Yeah, um, I'm be excited and hopefully, you know, I'll be in person. I'll be able to come out and see you. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, I know, hopefully the restrictions are lifted by then. You'll be able to come and visit the school. Right, so um, just very, very quickly then, Dylan, before we um, let you go and enjoy the rest of your day. What's the time over there, by the way, just now? Uh, 3 p.m., so 3 PM, it's 8 by y'all. Yeah, yeah, we are. It's dark outside, so um, nah. Uh, we'll we'll get very very quickly. We we do a quick fire round of three questions with all of our guests at the end of the each podcast. So just number one, if you could have a giant billboard in your hometown or anywhere in the world, what would it say on it? Um, so in my hometown, like we just said, every team has a every hometown has a sports team. Ours would say "Home of the Cutters" because that was the our sports logo. So that would be the one that is in my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what sport is it? 
Well, no. So all the sports teams from the, from the my high school were called the Cutters. And right. what was worse about it was the town I grew up in was called the Fair Lawn Cutters. So everybody thought that we were landscapers. Like that was like the whole thing. <laughs> I hope you yeah. had a set on lawn more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, sit on one. I walk. I walk in one. Get the steps in. Yeah. <laughs> and one, one the Cutters. Right. Uh, number two, then, what people or books have had the greatest influence on your life? Um, people, uh, from a personal level, my parents. Um, they've really instilled just about a lot of the morals that I have uh, professionally. Obviously, my supervisor, Katie Fitzpatrick, um, uh, Sarah Flory, good friend of mine, uh, Steve Silverman, David, Kirk. Sue Sutherland and uh, Carrie Saffron from a professional standpoint. And uh, a book that has influenced my life. Uh, I'm going to go with two here. Um, Schooling Bodies uh, by David Kirk. He, he wrote it back in late 80s, early 90s. And the other one probably uh, would be um, uh, Queer Phenomenology by Sarah Ahmed. And it's it just made me really think about, you know, the directions I take in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, that, we ask this question because we get so many good answers and such a good variety. And it's just amazing, like how one thing in a book can just make you change your outlook on something and actually force you to go and take action on something or change your mindset, essentially. Yeah, and it's also about how well the book is written too, right? Uh -huh. So if the book is written like poorly, you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, final one then what advice would you give to a teacher thinking of adopting more models based approaches into their PE lessons um, I would chat with people who have done those models and have done them successfully and I would chat with your students about hey this is what I want to try and be upfront. Mm -hmm. um, let's let's all try it out together what do we think and get the buy in that way yeah um, and also, you know, uh, reach out to, you know, um, Ash Casey and Ben Dyson, for example, do cooperative learning, right? Reach out to them. Mm -hmm. Fly above everybody else. They're humans like you and I. Yeah. And oh, it keeps. I was just, it was just cutting out there about, sorry, what was that you said there? The thing about? Um, which one did I? No, it was just like the last, like, it just, it just it actually just kept cutting out and coming back on there. I don't know if it, I don't know why. I think I know why. Give me a second here. I think I can go. So, um, as I said, I would give for people who want to adopt more models, it, it would be to talk to other people who have done those models before. So teachers who have experiences doing those types of things. Um, the second thing that I would do is, uh, you know, reach out to some of the mm -hmm. push these models. Um, so cooperative learning was by Ben Dyson and Ash Casey. They have a book on it. They're not superheroes. Go out, talk to them, like email yeah. them, say, Hey, I'm interested in doing this. What would you think I should do? And I promise you more times than not, these folks will email you back. They're human. Yeah. Right. Um, and plan it with your kids. Tell them I'm trying something new. Well, let's all try it together now and you tell me how it works and what we can do to change it. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, don't be afraid to tell them that you're experimenting and trying new stuff, but they want to be part of it. 
yeah, for sure. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, all the, all these people are super approachable, by the way, if, for anybody listening, and if they do want to reach out to people, because that's how we've got people like yourself, Dylan, onto the podcast, just by reaching out. And nine out of ten times, people have been super responsive and been more than happy to come on and help, because ultimately it's doing their bit to further help teachers, and that's ultimately why they're in it, I suppose. So. Cut out yeah, yeah, at the end. I was going to say, I, I thought that I'm here because you guys promised me a pint. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's the Scottish, that's the Scottish lager. That was beautiful, by the way. You'll, you'll, you'll love it. For the people listening, it's just a, a, a tenant's glass with water in it. <laughs> well, the thing, just lastly, for me, like, I think the, the people that are listening, they're obviously showing a real curiosity for learning. So that's half the battle. They're, they're actually listening to the podcast, what Dylan said. He's got some great messages to take away. So the fact that they're, they're even listening in shows that they've got that, that drive to learn. And if they continue that, then that will take them far. Yeah, exactly. No, well, Dylan, thanks very, very much for giving up your time today to come on and share your knowledge and experiences. It's been an absolute great chat um, and it's been great to have you on. Learned so much there and I've got things to take away that I'm going to look more into and hopefully try and within my teaching when we get back back to face-to-face teaching in the, in the classroom and in, in the gym hall, sorry, should I say. Can't wait to get back. Yeah. Uh, just thank you for having me. I, I, I'm not giving up my time. This is, I enjoy this. So thank you so much for having me. And maybe in the future when I move there, we can do it in person. For sure. It's, it's good practice getting to um, work with a Scottish accent as well. So. I, I have friends um, who, who have Scottish accents uh, and they have prepared me for it. Well, there you go then. Good. <laughs> you're in good hands. You're, you're, you're prepared. That's the main thing. Well, we'll see you sorry, when you come over. It's nice to meet you. Sounds great. Yep. Take care, Dylan. Take care. Bye. Cheers. So that brings us to the, the end of another episode, which means only one thing. You have your takeaway messages from both of the guests. So we will start with Mr. Burrow this evening. What is your key takeaway message from tonight's episode with Dylan Landy? I thought it was a very, very informative episode, talking about two new things. I've, le- I've learned a lot in that one that I've not really heard of before. So what was your, your key takeaways? A real great guy, a lot of insightful messages um, from the podcast, as, as you said there, um, you've took a lot away from it so far, so we'll, sh- we'll try and simplify what we've, what we've picked up. Um, mind you, be, you spoke about when you're planning lessons, involve the students, something that I could do more of, get the, get the voice of the pupils, do some question and answer sessions, do a Google form, get their opinion on what you're trying to do, and tell them that you're experimenting with models or with this particular model and then get their feedback on it. How's it working for you? What's, what's, how could I do it better? And I'm sure they'll be able to give you some good answers. And ultimately, it's their classroom and their learning. So they should be involved in the process. And we've actually got an episode coming up with um, a teacher in Glasgow who's going to come on and talk about people voice within her department when she was a principal teacher. So that'll be one to look out for and one that we're looking forward to recording. Mm-hmm. What would you We're almost at episode 50, aren't we? What's this? Yeah, it's crazy. 49. I think this is the 49th one we've recorded, albeit we're not putting them out in that specific order. But 
Yeah, I guess my key takeaway message would be looking at the models that Dylan spoke about and I really like the playing fair approach where you get the pupils to design a game, design the rules, design the tactics, design whether it's a target game, invasion game, um, because there's just so much that you can do with that, like you can teach so many of the benchmarks if you're delivering it to your BGE classes um, and it's taking that focus away from specific sports which can which puts a lot of uh, pupils off. The idea of it because a lot of people don't engage with that in the traditional style of teaching sports so going through skills practices for basketball or football or whatever it is or however it is you would maybe teach it um, so I think the insight that I got from tonight's episode was how flexible these different models can be because you're apply- it's principles that you're sticking to versus a set thing that you need to teach if you're just following the principles you can tweak it to sit- suit your local context so um, no, I think that was my kind of main takeaway message from tonight's episode, which I found was um, excellent from from Dylan. It certainly gave me food for thought going back into school after after all this has blown over. But anyway, I'll stop blabbering on and just want to thank you all again for tuning into this episode of the podcast with Dylan Landy. Um, it was a really really insightful chat, and we both really enjoyed this one and took loads from it again. Um, and if again if you see it on, on social media and you're enjoying these podcasts then do give us a wee share, do give us a wee retweet and help us get the word out there as well so that other people can listen um, but until next week we hope you have a fantastic week and take care of yourselves bye bye